0: You are now listening to the July 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles.
1: Hello, this is Brian Winston with the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Today in our third episode we will learn about Apostle James. There were two sets of brothers among the Apostles. Peter and Andrew were brothers and James and John were brothers as well. James is his English name, James in Hebrew is Jacob and in Greek is Iakobos. As you can see the name James was a common name just like the name Simon there are three men named James in the New Testament there were two who were named James among Jesus's 12 apostles the first is James the son of Zebedee whom we will learn about today and the other is James the son of Alphaeus this James is also called James the lesser or the younger then there is James who wrote the book of James This James is not one of the twelve apostles of Jesus, but Jesus' younger brother. James, the son of Zebedee, who is the subject of our message today, is a fisherman who fished with his brother John. Let's read Mark chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. As we can see from this passage, the two brothers and their father had hired servants, which likely meant they had multiple boats. Unlike Peter, James and John were very wealthy and ran a big fishing business. We also see evidence in other parts of the Bible that, with the wealth they had, they had access to those with influence at the time. The Bible gives us evidence that they enjoyed a close relationship with a high priest who had influence and power at the time. Here is a passage that attests to his family connection in John chapter 18 verses 15 to 16. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. John mentioned himself in the book of John. He typically referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the other disciple. So the other disciple in these verses who appeared with Peter is John the brother of James? When Jesus was captured, Peter could only look at him from afar, standing on his feet. But James and John were able to go into the high priest's house, apparently because they had a close relationship with the high priest. James was well connected, and that allowed him ready access to the house of the high priest. Today, we will consider the life of the Apostle James and try to draw spiritual lessons that we can apply in our lives. One day, while they were still with Jesus during his ministry, James and John came discreetly to speak with Jesus. They petitioned a personal request. According to Mark chapter 10, verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus replied, What do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. We should note that this request was in stark contrast to what Jesus just finished speaking to his disciples about. Jesus had told his disciples how the Son of Man would be condemned, scourged, and eventually die on the cross. That statement by Jesus appears in preceding verses in 32-34. Despite this revelation by Jesus, Andrew and John were still fixated on something totally different. It seems they were not really listening to Jesus. James thought Jesus would conquer Rome and become the new king. When that happened, he would be a top official from the right side of Jesus to rule over the people. Jesus understood what James and his brother John were asking. So, he said this to them in verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men Exercise authority over them. Here, the phrases lord it over them and exercise authority over them have the connotation of pressing down on them. It means one presses down on others so that the others would not be able to rise up to become a threat. Here, right after Jesus shared what kind of death he would face, James is asking Jesus about getting the power to rule over people. James was clearly not in touch with the reality of being portrayed by Jesus as to what was about to happen. He grew up in a wealthy household, he knew how to make relationships with those in power and understood what it means to have power. Perhaps that is why he requested to be placed in a high position when Jesus became powerful and influential. To James who sought worldly power and honor, Jesus asked, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Here, the cup refers to the cup of suffering, but James was thinking of a cup of celebration. He was dreaming of a cup of glory that he would be drinking with Jesus once Jesus entered into Jerusalem and became the king. Without thinking too deeply, he immediately answered that he could. Then Jesus told him this sobering account of what had to happen. That account appears in verses 44 and 45. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." Jesus was telling James, James, if you wish to become the highest among people, you must serve them first. My coming to the world is also to serve many people and not to be served. The first spiritual lesson we can draw through James is that Jesus calls us to the places of serving, not to the places of ruling or lording over others. Some people think various roles at church as representing ranks or some sort of status. Some churches give certain titles to certain members because they are afraid. Unless they get those titles, they may be offended or leave the church. Some churches do that to facilitate goodwill between the pastor and certain members. Their intention is to satisfy personal wants or what might appear to represent honor much like what James was looking for. To be clear, there are no ranks in the church, but if titles represent various roles and the whole congregation is divided into pastors, elders, deacons, general congregation, and children, who do you think should be the first in line to serve others? It will be pastors, then elders, and deacons, and so on. This is because God called all of us to serve. There was one pastor that prepared a sermon about what happens to the believers when they get to heaven. This pastor tried to describe how it would be different there from this world where we would toil and suffer. He preached, the Bible tells us that we will all be like kings when they go to heaven. He expected the congregation to resonate with this message and would yearn to get to such a place. However, instead, he got indifferent, ho-hum responses from the congregation. He was surprised and wanted to know why. He found out that at least some of the congregation was thinking, if everyone is like kings, that is not going to be fun. There should be servants that would serve us. The pastor then realized those in the congregation that were thinking this way truly missed the point. When we get to heaven, we all serve others as if the others are kings. That is how we all become like kings. This realization by this pastor applies to us living in this world as Christians. When we serve others, we raise up those we serve. When we all serve others, everyone is raised up. We do not rise up above others by pulling people down and ruling over them. Children are raised up because parents serve them. Wives are raised up because husbands serve them. Husbands are raised up because wives serve them. And parents are raised up because children serve them. This is what happens in the church. The congregation is raised up because pastors serve them, and little children are raised up because deacons serve them. Ultimately, all believers in the church are raised up because everyone is serving everyone else. This is the principle of the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us, if we want to be the highest, we must first be the lowest. If we want to be served, we must first serve others. I hope we will all become the servers and not the served wherever we may be. This is what Jesus taught us, and this is what he demonstrated to us. This concludes today's episode of the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.
2: I washed away
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is true religion. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
3: There's no doubt that Jesus didn't have a dark side, but he wasn't immune himself to experiencing the dark side of religion. So if you've ever experienced the dark side of religion, no one understand this, your savior understands what you're going through. He understands the dark side of religion. For example, Jesus regularly was at odds with the self-centered, self-righteous, self-glorifying religious leaders of his day. They were so corrupt that Jesus described them this way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's Jesus dealing with men who literally are the embodiment of the dark side of religion. They were corrupt men practicing a very dark religion that was here's the kicker, utterly worthless in God's eyes, utterly worthless in God's eyes. There is a type of religion that is worthless in God's eyes. And we don't want to end up practicing that type of religion while we're here on earth. See, they saw in Jesus the exact opposite of what they themselves were. They saw a man in Jesus who practiced the purest form of religion, ever known to man. Folks, if you wanna know what pure religion looks like, true religion looks like, look to Jesus. Don't look to your pastor, don't look to a priest, don't look to any, look to Jesus, because he will tell you and he will show you what pure religion, true religion looks like. And therein is the irony. The irony is that what led Jesus to the cross, you would think that if I practice true religion, there's no way I'll end up on a cross. But that's exactly what happened. The, The man who practiced the purest religion of all ended up getting nailed to a cross precisely because of that. Pure religion led Jesus to the cross. Now there's gonna be times in which you practice pure religion and others are gonna be blessed, but no one understands this, when you live for the Lord and practice the type of religion that is pleasing to God, there are gonna be others that just despise you. They're not gonna like you. They are not gonna like you. So that naturally raises the question, what did the pure religion that Jesus practiced actually look like. Now, before we answer that question, I want to take us briefly to an Old Testament passage that is of tremendous help on this topic. It's a passage in which God tells perhaps the most religious people on the face of the planet why their religion is absolutely worthless, worthless in their sight, in his sight. And I'm talking about the Israelites. The Israelites were a an exceedingly religious people. And in the book of Isaiah, God says, "Hey, your religion that you're practicing, it's no good." It's no good. So church, it's on that note. Those of you that are online, it's my honor to take us to the word of God today. We'll be in Isaiah 58 and uh, I have it on your notes. I have it up here on the screen, but church, hear the word of God this morning. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And here's a tough one. And not to hide from your own flesh. Amen. Church, I present to you the word of God today. May these words transform us from the inside out. So our passage opens by asking two really important questions and here they are. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you're not acknowledging it? God, God, we're being exceedingly religious. How come you can't see and acknowledge all of our religiosity? Because our religiosity is really good. It's really, really good. You see, the Israelites had wrongly assumed that just because you do something religious-looking, like fasting, that's impressive, right? The person that fasts, I mean, that's hardcore. And we're not talking we're skipping a meal because we're driving in the car and we just can't stop. We're talking we skip a meal on purpose. They're fasting, they're praying. They had wrongly assumed that such religious devotion would automatically be pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. But the fact of the matter is there is a type of religion where we can honor God with our lips, but our hearts can be a million miles away from him, right? And again, there's a type of religion that is just worthless in God's sight. Isaiah says this, and this is what I was getting at. And the Lord said, this people, they draw near with their mouth. They're really good at talking religion. And they honor me with their lips, blah, 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 blah. God this, God this, blah, blah, blah. Look how holy I am. While their hearts uh-uh, are a million miles away from me. Listen, if your heart is full of lust, anger, pride, and even something as simple as discontentment, it doesn't matter how much fasting or praying you do. All of your religious devotion, all of your religious fervor is nothing but noise in God's ears. In the same way, you can bring endless sacrifices to the Lord, endless sacrifices. And by endless sacrifices, we don't offer animals anymore, but you can come to church consistently. You can never miss church. Um, how many of you, when you were kids, you got a button uh, or a pin if you didn't miss church? Remember those days? And the one my church gave out, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, shop, they gave out real metal ones. It was totally metal and I wanted it because it was metal. And it was just cool when the the, the younger generation can't appreciate how cool it was to have something like that in in those days, but I wanted that metal button. But listen, for many of us, that's the sacrifice we offer to the Lord. I'm never going to miss church. Listen, that's a great sacrifice, but we have to be careful because we can bring endless sacrifices to the Lord and still not be practicing a religion that is pleasing to him. First Samuel, has the Lord as great delight in you never missing church? in offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen to the fat of rams. That's why I always say the most religious thing you can probably ever do is skip church sometimes. Skip church and seek the Lord. Skip church and minister to your neighbors. Skip church. All of you are like, I'm not coming to church next week. There's no way. <laughs> but the point is this. The point is this, is, and I always say this, if if you're ever gonna disciple somebody and you're like, where do I start? You always start with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So teach them to fear the Lord. But the second principle that you always wanna teach somebody, I think, is to think backwards. Christianity is about thinking backwards because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And it comes true. It's definitely true in this area when it comes to what is the type of religion that is truly pleasing to God, the world and your flesh are going to say the religion that pleases God is external. It's doing these things. But what's the opposite of that? It's internal. The religion that pleases God starts with a pure heart a heart that seeks to please him and seeks to give their lives away in this generation. That is the call of the gospel to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. We'll find it. True religion. And the reason I'm, by the way, the reason this message is part of the reason for this message is you guys, many of you know me, if you're new online or if you're new here, you know that um, I tend to preach with an edge in the pulpit. I cut with a pretty hard edge. I'm kind of wired that way. I get up here. I always joke that I'm, I am I got it. Even though I grew up Presbyterian, I tend to preach like a Baptist. I don't know why. Um, but the danger in that is especially over the last couple of years, we have been in a contraction, meaning Jesus said, you will know the end is near because it's like a woman in labor. There'll be contractions. And the last couple of years, there's no doubt in this country and around the world, we've been in a contraction. And so. It has been great for guys like me because I wanna preach and I don't, you know, I don't mind telling it like it is. The danger though is that I can let, we can let the pendulum swing way over here where we're like, yeah, that world over there is really bad and we're really good. (laughs) And that might be true, we're the church, we are his church, but we, we never wanna forget that that world out there needs us, amen? That world out there needs compassion, that world out there needs love and I need that reminder If I need it, I know you probably need it as well. Pure religion isn't about going through the motions. It isn't about checking things off a box or trying to act religious so that I'm impressed or anyone else is impressed. I always tell you, a lot of you will come up to me after the service and you'll go, hey, I'm not gonna be here next week. And I don't, people do that for all sorts of reasons, a lot of good reasons, but I think every once in a while, somebody's coming to tell me, Hey, just so you know, I'm still religious. (laughs) I'm still a religious person, even though I'm not gonna be here next week. What I'm about to share with you is gonna blow your mind. Sometimes I think the people that aren't here are probably being the most religious because they're out there in the real world doing something that needs to be done, amen? Now, none of you are coming next week. (laughs) It's okay, Pastor Brandon's preaching next week anyway, so. (laughs) I'm not kidding either. (laughs) No, so definitely come, definitely come. I won't be here, but you come. I'm joking. Yeah. Pure religion is about having a heart that is devoted to the Lord, seeking to please him at all times and in all ways. And that's why the passage, let's just go back to our passage. It says this, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness." to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, your own flesh and blood when they need you, the religious thing to do is to minister to them and to care for them. James puts it this way, the half-brother of Jesus. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is what? Worthless. Folks, there is a worthless type of religion and you and I don't wanna be guilty of practicing it, okay? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to be about other people, to give your life away, to not worry about your possessions, your kingdom, your world, but to go, God, I'm here in this short little life that I have to serve you and to give my life away, to be a light to the world to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Those that practice pure and true religion are those that don't just listen to the word. What do they do? They do it, they're doers. That's what James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. That's why I said, you could come to church every week and listen, 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 listen. But that's why I said, I think oftentimes the most spiritual thing you can do is sometimes skip church and go do. Skip church and go do. Skip Bible study and go do. Go minister to those that need you. Go care for those in need of your hands and your feet, your words to encourage them. It was precisely this type of religion that proved to be a thorn in the flesh to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were offended by his religion. Now this is important because I I said it earlier, you would think that if you practice this type of religion, you would endear yourself to everyone. You're not going to. This religion is going to be offensive to people. Now, trust me, it will be, it will be living water and bread from heaven when you practice this type of religion. To, 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 so many people are gonna love when you come into their life and minister to them at a point of need. But there are others, trust me, that aren't gonna like you. The Pharisees, they were offended by Jesus. The Pharisees wanted to look religious in order to impress other people. Jesus was religious in ways that truly pleased his father above. And that is a huge reason that the religious leaders were so eager to crucify Jesus. So one of the favorite ways, one of my favorite ways that Jesus practiced pure religion, you wanna know what it was? He broke man-made religious rules to care for people. Now, we all have traditions. Traditions are good. We have family tradition. We have church traditions. We have personal traditions, personal things that we like and personal ways that we like to do things. Traditions aren't bad until those traditions interfere with us serving the Lord as we should. And when does that line get crossed? Soon and often, I would suppose. Soon and often, if we are not careful. The religious leaders, and I've used this example a couple weeks ago. I'm going to use it again. The religious leaders, for example, were super, 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 super strict about the Sabbath. They were so strict, as a matter of fact, and I brought this up before, that if your family member or if a friend of yours was in distress in any way, maybe they were sick, maybe something happened and they need your help, you couldn't help them until the Sabbath was over or you were, in, according to the religious leaders, you were breaking the law. For the religious leaders, strict obedience to human regulations and human rules was at the heart of what pleases God. Obey God, even if it means being merciless. As you can imagine, that did not rest well with Jesus, right? It didn't sit well with Jesus at all. He was more than willing to prioritize mercy over regulations. Mark 3 says this, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. See, you're going to have people in your life, they're going to watch diligently, to see if you attend church every week. Because for them, that's what pure religion is. You never skip church. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Those people are gonna jump on, you You miss church today. You're gonna go, yeah, but I helped someone out. But yeah, you miss church. Who cares if you were merciful to that guy over there? You miss church. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? So in other words, what exactly can we do on the Sabbath? But they, the religious leaders, were silent, and he looked around at them with anger. There's something that made Jesus angry, and you want to know what it was? Worthless religion. Worthless religion made Jesus's blood boil grieved at the hardness of their heart. how You're telling me this man with a withered hand, you're not gonna let me heal him because I should just sit here and wait till tomorrow? No, 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 mercy doesn't wait till tomorrow. True religion practices mercy today, amen? Grieved at the hardness of the heart, he said to them, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Let me ask you, do you think this man's life was changed that day? You bet it was. The Pharisees went out. Now look at this right here. The Pharisees went out and what? Immediately. You want to know what true religion does? It makes people mad. They didn't wait a day or two. (laughs) They didn't wait till the Sabbath was over in order to plot to kill Jesus. The Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. They wanted to wipe this type of religion off the face of the planet. They couldn't stand it. Folks, that's exactly why I said pure religion led to this. Pure religion led to this. Folks, what our world needs today is people that will practice pure religion. But I'm going to warn you, it's not going to please everybody. It's not going to please those. Some of you have people in your own families that are not going to like it when you prioritize pleasing the Lord above pleasing men. For the religious leader, someone who is serious about pleasing God must avoid associating with people of ill repute. And yet this is exactly what we find Jesus doing time and again. You guys are familiar with this. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisees' house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, do you want to know what true religion, pure religion looks like? You're about to see it. Starting in verse 38. This is one of the purest examples of pure religion, true religion in all the Bible. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Folks, that's pure religion right there. That's pure religion 101. And here's the irony the Pharisee, the, in the, the Pharisee in this case, was seeing true religion practiced right in front of his face. And he didn't recognize it. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Hmm. If Jesus had only known who this was, he wouldn't let her do this. Of course, Jesus knew exactly who this woman was and was more than willing to let her draw near because in her drawing near, she practiced what we all need to practice, and that's pure religion. She stood behind him weeping, broken and contrite. What does the book of Psalms say? What are the sacrifices that God desires? But a broken and contrite heart. This I will not despise. What does God want? Does he need endless sacrifices? No, he wants a broken and contrite, a humble heart from his people, obediently walking with him. Regardless of what other people say, we live to please the Lord. Whether that makes sense to you or to others is not our Concern, we live to please God. Jesus, of course, once told a parable to drive home this point. The parable went something like this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, what are the odds? The first guy walking down the road is a priest. Praise the Lord. You provide. God, you provide. Thank you for sending a priest, a pastor. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, uh uh-oh, he passed by on the other side. Yeah, maybe he's having a bad day. So likewise, a Levite. Oh, my goodness. Thank heavens. Another religious man. The first one was probably busy, had something going on. This guy it's surely going to help God. You are going out of your way today. Thank you for sending so many religious people my way as I'm lying here half dead, having been robbed. And he saw, and he passed by on, uh, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, oh no, not a Samaritan. For heaven's sakes, God, what, are you cursing me? Have I done something wrong? That you would send a Samaritan my way. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. If you want to know what true religion looks like, here's what it looks like. Pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked this question, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, and everybody say it with me, you go and do likewise. If you wanna do religion the right way, if you wanna do religion that pleases God, go and do just like this guy did. Go and do just like this guy did. Now look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell amongst robbers? That is Jesus's way of asking, which of these three men do you think practice pure religion? In this parable, the priest and the Levite, they didn't want to get their hands dirty. Why? Because being ceremonially clean was what was important. I got to keep my hands clean. I got to keep the exterior man clean. I got to do what's religious on the outside. Who cares that my heart has no mercy on the inside? What's important is that the outside looks amazing. Yet ironically, it was the most unlikely person. You want to talk about religion that's backwards? Here it is. It was the most unlikely person doing the most out-of-the-way thing that was actually practicing the purest religion of all. So I say the first thing you teach somebody that's a new believer, teach them to fear the Lord. The second thing you teach them is start thinking backwards. Start thinking backwards because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. It was the most unlikely person doing the most out of the way thing that proved to be practicing the purest religion of all. Who would have thought? Who would have thought the man that was willing to get his hands dirty yet had a pure heart, practice the purest religion of all. This issue of what constitutes being clean is addressed in the book of James. Let's go back to that for a second. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and now listen to this, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained from the world. The religious leaders of Jesus' day worked very hard to remain outwardly clean, but cared very little if their hearts were clean, which is exactly why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They may have kept their hands clean, but their hearts were filthy. Let me give you an example. This is a tough one. Listen to this. Not a tough one, but it's, a, it's kind of a bold one. I noted earlier, the religious leaders chided Jesus for ministering to, amongst other people, women of ill repute. <laughs> women who were sinners, prostitutes, streetwalkers, women of the night, whatever you want to say. They chided Jesus for this. Tell me whose religion is more pure in God's eyes. The man who ministers to prostitutes, but whose heart is pure, or the man who avoids prostitutes, but lusts in his heart after them nonetheless. You tell me whose religion is pure in God's eyes. That is exactly why, you guys, we see Jesus writing things like this. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, get this, make sure this drives deep into your heart. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can make him unclean or defile him. There's nothing you can eat or nothing you can touch that will make you unclean out here. You can have hands that are filthy, but a heart that is pure and it is pleasing in God's eyes. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him from within out of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, discontentment, bad attitude. I can go on and on and on. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Okay, I need to wrap this up. Why does any of this matter? Here's why it matters. As Easter approaches, you're going to get people like me that are going to challenge people like you to invite somebody to church. And you're gonna go, well, I wanna do the religious thing. So I better get a card and invite somebody to church and then I can tell Pastor Bill that I did. Listen, as important as it is to invite people to church, I'm not minimizing that. It's it's important that we invite people to church, especially like on an Easter. But you wanna know what's even more important is for the people in our lives to see you and me practicing pure and true religion in their midst every day. More important than that invitation to church is them watching you and me give our lives away in service to this world, amen? Amen. May the world see in us a people who aren't obsessed with external superficial religiosity, but rather a people who carry one another's burdens, who go the extra mile, who are rich in mercy, whose hearts are pure before the Lord. We're not show-offs, we don't pray so that others can see, we don't fast so that the world can know, the pure, that's why I said the purest religion you will ever see will often be practiced where no one sees it. It's when you pray in your room and no one sees you praying, when you fast and no one knows you're fasting, when you give your life away in service to others and no one saw you do it except the good Lord himself. That is religion that is pleasing to the Lord. It will be a blessing to many. Others will hate you for it, but know this, it's pleasing to God. It is pleasing to God. So I finished with this challenge and here it is. As Easter approaches, let your life reflect a person who is practicing the type of religion that is truly pleasing to the Lord because this is what our world needs. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you this day. And God, we thank you. We thank you, God, that as crazy as this world is, God, you have called us to love this world and and to give our lives away in service to this world. And so, God, may we be a pure and obedient people to you, pure in heart in the deepest recesses of our hearts. But Lord, may we not be afraid to get our hands dirty and to give our lives away. God, help us to do what looks irreligious if it really means doing what's pleasing to you. Help us to have the courage to do that in that moment. God, help us. To not look at other people and say, why them? God, may we look at other people and go, God loves them. And God, give our lives away in service, reaching them with the gospel. So God, make us a, a bold and courageous people as Easter approaches. Help us to live out the gospel in the presence of those that are watching us in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our lives. We love you and we thank you, God. And we pray these things in your son's name, our savior. The church said with me, amen.
2: Hey, God bless you.
4: Wash me clean in your great love and in your mercy. And make me clean just like the snow, pure and white. I have trampled on your grace and in my folly. Place your hand upon my heart and make me right. of my salvation In your presence there is life So bring me home I'm turning around I'm turning around and bones. Rejoice and sing an anthem strong. You fill my heart with songs. Yesterday is gone. Yesterday is gone and you
0: Following program is called Equipping the Saints.
5: Hello heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, what would you say to those you love if you knew that your departing this earth was imminent? If you knew that you were going to be with the Lord, what would you say to them? What would you want them to remember? Well, obviously, what you would say would be extremely important, of utmost importance. Indeed, you would realize that it would be the last opportunity to share the things that are important to you, to those in whom you love. As we come to our new study in Second Peter, we come to Peter's second inspired epistle, and it is written, as we will see, that we would be made aware of the reality of what the Lord wants us to be doing. We're going to see that, how the Lord wants us to grow, how the Lord wants us to function. And Peter, as we're going to see, has been made aware from the Lord that his time on earth is almost done. And he is, as we will see, by way of reminder, reminding these believers of what is truly important. And I believe we're going to see as we begin this look in Second Peter, as we begin that look, we're going to see a greeting with a purpose, and more specifically, a reminder that Christ is everything. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Second Peter, and we're going to be looking just at... Verse 1 today, I had planned to teach on verses 1 and 2, but that's just not possible unless you want to go through lunch. We're going to read through up to verses 4 in a minute. But let me share some context about the book of Second Peter. What we know is that the writers identified, Simon Peter, verse 1, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at him more closely in a couple of minutes. And who is he writing to? Again, we're going to see that in depth today. There are those who have a saving faith in Jesus Christ the same faith as he and his fellow apostles do. They are those who have come into a saving relationship with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, do we know why he's writing specifically, or actually who he's writing to specifically? Is there a set of people that are named? Well, we know in his first letter, First Peter one one, he says that he is writing to those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, those who were aliens and sojourners on this earth, those who had been born again, through a living hope in the context of trusting Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They have a living hope. And then we see in this book that he seems to be alluding to that, but it goes much farther than that. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This now, beloved, is the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He says, this is the second letter I'm writing to. So obviously this letter includes those in whom he has first written to in that area we know as Asia Minor. But as we're going to see, this letter seems to go beyond that, as do all the scriptures they are inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, having been equipped for every good work. He seems to expand it here, as we'll see today, to everyone who has a like faith in Jesus Christ as they do. So with that in mind, we'll see the Apostle Peter sharing the most important things. Now in verses 2-4, through we have the theme of the book. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. This has to do with a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Look down in verse 8 after revealing the qualities that we should have as we truly are walking with the Lord. He says in verse 8 of chapter 1, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in what? in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to see this term of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our God and Savior, of our Lord and Savior throughout. Then look down in verse 18 in contrast to those who would lead believers astray. And actually, let's go to the end of the book, chapter 3, verse 18. In contrast to those who would lead believers astray, Peter says in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This book is about growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter makes it clear within this book that we are to grow, and we grow in that relationship with Him through the Word of God. And yet we see from a concerned shepherd revealing his last final words to believers here that there were threats to our growth in Christ there were those who would pervert and twist and even mock the word of god and even though we've been taught this before and we understand these truths peter considers it right to remind us of these things look at chapter 1 second peter chapter 1 verse 12 therefore i shall always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which was present with you. And he says, And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. It's right for me to remind you of these things, and I'm going to be diligent so that you can call them up after my departure. This letter is a reminder of the truth of God concerning our relationship with the living God this is a godly apostle who's about to be with the Lord, faithfully sharing that we would be able to call these things to mind. Now look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, This now, beloved, is the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. By way of reminder. That you should remember what? The words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter is writing this so that we would be reminded that we would remember the word of God, that which God uses to grow us in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ, that which he uses to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Peter was about to go and he shares the most important thing. Now, lastly, within this, I've alluded to this, but there are warnings that thread through this book concerning those who would be an impediment to growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. After telling these believers to pay attention to the prophetic word made more sure at the end of chapter 1, he makes a clear contrast in the beginning of chapter 2 that false teachers would come along and secretly introduce destructive heresies and exploit them with false words. And he then shares the reality that God doesn't miss a beat. If he didn't spare angels when well, they sinned, if he didn't spare the ancient world, if he condemned Sodom and Gomorrah, how much more will he rescue true believers, the godly from temptation, such as he did with Noah and Lot. And within this portion, in chapter 2, these bad guys are described, and we get a view from God's viewpoint, which shows where their hearts are at and then what they do. They are false teachers, those who are a threat to the true knowledge of Christ because they distort the Word of God. Then in chapter 3, after Peter stirs them up by way of reminder that they should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles, he says, in light of that, there will be those who mock it, who come and mock the truth, following after their own lusts. And then in the end, we see that there are those who distort the Scriptures. And that we need to be on guard, lest we be carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and then thus not grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look back in chapter 3 and verse 15. And obviously we're just touching these portions, we'll get to them as we go through our study. But I want you to see kind of the overall theme here. Chapter 3, verse 15, "...and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable do." Do what? They distort. They distort, he says, "...they distort to their own destruction." You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing these bad guys do this stuff, it's a threat to your relationship with Christ. Be on your guard lest you be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and you fall from your own steadfastness. This is a concerned shepherd. He doesn't want you to fall in your relationship with Christ. And he says here, but in contrast in the very end of the book, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of being taken captive and falling by the spiritual wayside through the false teaching of those who would twist and pervert the word, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, just in a nutshell, these are Peter's last words and they are very important is a reminder to true believers that ultimately it is God's desire for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that is through the Word of God. And there will be threats to that. There will be threats to that, that we must be on guard, that we are not carried away, but rather that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So it's very important. It is an important letter. And today we get into the beginning of this letter where we see, I believe, A greeting with a purpose. Look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then the greeting, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And I'm going to read a little farther because this whole portion is a unit up to verse 4. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence for by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them he might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. It is God's desire for grace and peace to be, as we will see, multiplied, magnified in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord that he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through his precious and magnificent promises. Peter points to the truth of God and the God of the truth. So with that in mind, let's take a look specifically at verse 1 as we come into this passage. And I believe we should be motivated, first of all, by Peter's example. What does he say? Verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we've already looked at the overall context, just briefly gone over that today. We will talk about Peter in a second, but let's talk about what he says here. Notice he says he is a bond servant, and apostle of Jesus Christ. And grammatically, the portion of Jesus Christ applies to both, a servant and apostle. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so with this in mind, what do we know about Peter? What do we know about Peter from Scripture? Well, his full name was Simon bar Simon is a very common Jewish name. bar meant son, as we see, of Jonah. And Simon was introduced to Jesus the Messiah by his brother Andrew, and he was renamed by the Lord at that point, John 1.42. Scripture also reveals that Peter was a fisherman. And we know that that was laborious and strenuous work. And you needed to be strong to do that. So obviously Peter was very strong. He was also married. He, his mother-in-law is mentioned in Luke chapter 4. And Paul refers to Peter in 1 Corinthians 9.5 as one who has a believing wife. Now it's quite apparent that after having coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a few months later, Peter is called by Jesus to follow him. Look in Matthew chapter four with me. Keep your fingers in Second Peter. Matthew chapter four, verse eighteen. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, and that's speaking of Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed Him. Isn't that wonderful? We see in Luke chapter 8 that after a night of prayer, the Lord Jesus chose the twelve who would be His disciples, whom He also named them as apostles. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And we're going to look at these terms, bondservant and apostle, in a minute. But speaking of those twelve apostles, Simon Peter was consistently the one who was named first in the list of apostles. He was in the inner circle of the disciples that consisted of him and James and John. Now we see in scripture that he was an impulsive and somewhat zealous person putting his foot in his mouth quite often. We see this in the transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, and when also in John 13, when Jesus was washing his feet, we see him doing that. Yet for all of Peter's outward flaws, he believed in Jesus Christ. He believed that he was the Holy One of God, that he was the Lord, that he had the words of eternal life. John 6.63 Indeed, when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16.16 And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus answered and said, you are Peter or Petros, that means rock, And then the Lord Jesus said, I believe, referring to Himself upon this Petra massive rock, I will build my church. And then just a short time after Peter's wonderful declaration of truth, what happens? The Lord Jesus has to reprove him because he's thinking satanically. He's thinking man's thoughts and not God's. He's setting his mind on man's interests. This sometimes impulsive man followed Jesus up to the point where he denied him 3 times on the night that Jesus was betrayed Luke 22:61 Peter cowering before a slave girl Yet in marvelous fashion John records the resurrected Lord's meeting with Peter at the Sea of Galilee Peter is there he becomes seemingly impatient waiting for the Lord and he goes fishing And after a night of not catching anything, the Lord, unrecognized on the beach, tells him to throw his net on the right side, cast it on the right side. And then as their nets are full and about to burst with a huge haul of fish, Peter recognizes and jumps out and swims to the Lord where the Lord had prepared breakfast for him. And here we see the Lord in marvelous fashion restoring Peter who had denied him three times. And when he restored him, he restored him concerning what he wanted him to do. Do you love me more than these? And then he said, tend or feed my lambs. Do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Do you love me? Tend or feed my sheep. And then a little more than a month after that time on the day of Pentecost, Peter becomes the leader of the infant church. We see the once cowering Peter filled with the Spirit, boldly preaching the gospel. What an incredible difference the Spirit of God makes in a yielded man or woman's life. Peter becomes the first to spread the gospel to the Gentiles with the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And though Peter was rebuked later by Paul for his aloofness to the Gentiles in Galatians 2, we see him continuing to become more like Christ and to be obedient to the Lord's calling to him to feed his sheep. And the letters of 1 Peter and 2 Peter are examples of that fact and now in second peter peter not only feeds the sheep but he also warns to the threats to the word the threats to growing in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ those things that can carry us away so with that in mind what is our passage back in second peter chapter 1 i may have been saying first peter but you know what i mean second peter second peter chapter 1 Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. and all scriptures inspired by God, you need to ask the question, why does he identify himself this way? Is it just simply a greeting? Why does he do that? We need to understand what he is trying to convey, inspired by the Spirit of God. And again, as I shared, both the terms bondservant, doulos, and apostle, apostolos are both connected to of Jesus Christ. We see that he is... A servant, first of all. This word translated bond servant is a familiar Greek word, doulos. If you're familiar, it was a servile term in Greek to describe a slave who had completely surrendered their will to the authority and will of another. One pastor writes the term servant or doulos in Peter's Greco Roman context referred to the class of people who were at the bottom of the social order. They became slaves, for example, through war, debt, capital convictions, simply being born into slavery. In any case, there were slave dealers who acquired and sold them as property. They had no rights, privileges, freedoms in any sphere of society outside the family to which they belonged. Though some of them, including doctors and accountants, were more educated than their owners. And with this background in mind, we see Peter, inspired by the Spirit, calls himself a doulos, a slave. You see, Peter recognized that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have been bought with a price. We've been bought with a price. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. You know, we have quite a different gospel going out these days where come to Jesus, He'll make your life great, just do whatever you want, He'll just be right by your side. That's not the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you address the Father who who as the the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed without the price paid with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Tremendous price was paid to buy us from our futile way of life, from our sinful way of life, which would only lead to death and eternal punishment. The price paid was the blood of Jesus Christ. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Not only does Peter relay these truths, so does the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that, notice this, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body.
6: i a